0: Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will.
1: A vital element in keeping the peace is our military, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction.
0: You hold the line true to honor. Living by a moral code regardless of who is
1: watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line, a podcast on national security, innovation, technology, and policy. I'm your host, retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass, and joining me is co-host, retired U.S. Army Colonel Mark Solomons. Mark, how are you
1: doing? I'm doing great, Guy. I had a great weekend, and I'm ready to get fired up and start the week.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So happy Tuesday to you. It's always great to uh, be back into our weekly battle rhythm for the podcast. As we're jumping into this, I did want to make a special note of thanks to two people who are podcast listeners. One is Michael Posey. I really appreciate the fact that unsolicited, he sought us out on Anchor FM and signed up to make a monthly donation. That's absolutely fantastic. First person to do so, and I love the fact that, again, it was not solicited which as many people have pointed out to me since then that I'm probably losing a step because I have not yet asked people to do that. So if you feel so inclined, if you've enjoyed listening to the podcast so far, trust me, there are definitely some startup costs involved, both in money and of course, the ongoing commitment and time. So if you feel so inclined, head on over to anchor.fm, search out the Holding the Line podcast and you can make a monthly contribution or even a one-time contribution if you feel so inclined. I can tell you, I'd be honored to receive it. The second person I wanted to make note of specifically is Nate Lauterbach. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. He had listened to our podcast episode with Ben Coleman on innovation, made it a point to go on Twitter to highlight that episode and say, look, a lot of times when you talk about innovation, it's kind of a snooze fest or you're just repaving the same ground over and over. And he's like, this episode was not that. So big thanks to uh, Nate for his positive support of the program on Twitter. And of course, once again, Michael for his support financially. The last kind of update I wanted to give everybody and our listeners is just a quick congratulations to Mark on his new job. So yesterday on Monday, he fired up his brand new job. He's now returning to the Pentagon as one of the senior leaders there. He's going to be working in OSD policy and he'll be in a shop called SOLIC, which stands for Special Operations Low Intensity Conflict. So a great grab by the Department of Defense, they recognize the value he's going to bring to that organization with his wide, diverse contacts. So he'll be uh, certainly gainfully employed now, Monday through Friday, at least, as he's moving forward. Uh, and we'll continue to work Mark in, definitely for the rappers on the episodes as much as we possibly can, start working in some guest co-hosts as well. So uh, Mark, congrats to you.
1: Hey, thanks, Guy. I appreciate it. Again, I'm ready to, you know, get back to the work and uh, get rid of the COVID here. I've been sitting around for uh Period of time, mowing my yard, and I'm ready to get back to work.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's something, Mark, I know you and I offline have talked about numerous times. I'm certainly enjoying the path I'm on right now. I think there's a lot of ways for those listening that you can always make a significant positive impact to the nation, to national security, to your family, to your community. But I got to be honest with you, part of me, Mark, is envious because I do know the immediate impact, the positive impact you can have when you're working inside of the organization because you can move a lot of levers they can be more difficult to move when you're on the outside. So again, congrats. So Ooh. for our listeners, uh, really a special episode because we've had two pretty significant fast moving pieces of information we've touched on previously. We thought what a great time to circle back around to discuss. The first one's going to work. A to touch on quickly. And this is the book that was just released today by Ambassador John Bolton, the former national security advisor to President Trump. So we're going to just talk a little bit about the book, some of the revelations The second one we're going to definitely drop anchor and spend more time with is this past Friday, you had the new Secretary of the Navy, Ken Braithwaite. You also had the current Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Gilday, took to the podium on a Friday afternoon, which is usually where you look to bury some bad news, uh, announced that they were going to go ahead and reverse course yet again, and in this case, uphold the firing of U.S. Navy Captain Brett Crozier the former commanding officer of the Theodore Roosevelt, the aircraft carrier that had been stricken by a pretty significant case of coronavirus. So we'll touch on that more in depth. But Mark, let's go ahead and start off with, I guess, that big one that's been drawing a lot of headlines for quite some time now, and that's Ambassador Bolton's book that has come out. And frankly, I don't think even Ambassador Bolton would disagree with the fact that this is really being touted as a no-kidding, guns-a-blazing tell-all, where he is willing to share a lot of the -the behind-the-scenes some personal information, some dirty laundry about not only his former boss, but his former coworkers. I'm curious, you know, what are, what are your thoughts so far on where we are with this revelation?
1: Yeah, no, certainly this is big news that, you know, hit the beltway as well as the uh, international community writ large. I mean, let's face it. I mean, no one can come across and say Bolton is some, you know, left-leaning, you know, liberal, tree-hugging, whatever. He's a hardcore conservative and a been in this business for quite a number of years, so I think we're going to have to take what's in this book as pretty much face value. And it came down as he says it has. And of course, watching the White House uh, try to get it disqualified for revealing top secret stuff, which you and I both know is kind of a fanciful way of saying you know don't don't buy the book. But at the end of the day, I know he checked all the blocks and crossed all the Ts and dotted the i's to, to run it through the proper channels. And while there may be a few questionable things. I'm sure Mr. Bolton has done his homework diligently, and uh, I'm looking to get into some some of the highlights there that he he brings out there. Now, having said all that, I will say uh was disappointed that he did not come forward when he had the chance during the uh, impeachment process last January. I think this may have shed quite a bit of light on what was going on with the whole U- Ukraine scandal, and, you know, a true patriot probably would have a uh, country a little bit further ahead of, uh, you know, profits here, but it is what it is, you know, this information is just coming out now. And I think it's important just for national security practitioners to understand, you know, how a lot of this stuff works behind the scenes. I mean, it's always a, a gray area, if you will, with the international politics and getting countries to cooperate or or not cooperate. So, um, again, looking forward to the highlights in here. What, what what have you heard so far?
0: Well, I just wanted to double down on something you said. And and I remember, Months ago, when this book was first announced, and it also was the same day that Ambassador Bolton had signaled that he would be willing, if subpoenaed, to testify before the Senate. That if the House of Representatives subpoenaed him, he would fight that in court, and he would he would seek to not testify. Then the revelations about his book come out, and uh, because of the kerfuffle that surrounds it, he says, "You know what? If the if the Republican-controlled Senate calls me." that I'm going to do my civic duty and go before and answer their questions, which frankly, I think he made it apparent. He did not want to testify regardless of whether you thought it was a perfect or imperfect impeachment inquiry by the house of representatives. doesn't matter. You were subpoenaed or, or excuse me, they were going to subpoena you and they were asking you to testify. Others did you refused. And then when you knew that there was a greater than average likelihood that a Republican controlled Senate would not subpoena you, that's when you offer up your services. So uh, unfortunately, I think too clever by half. He's definitely getting beat up by both sides of the media, meaning left-leaning and right-leaning. But I think one of the articles I read over the weekend that really stood out to me, one of the magazines I do read is called National Interest. It's a, definitely a conservative magazine. And it was written, I believe it was by uh, the editorial board, saying that admittedly, John Bolton's been a longtime friend of that publication, of the individuals there. However, they were very disappointed in, his, in how he has handled this situation but that if it came down to a battle of credibility between President Trump and Ambassador Bolton, Ambassador Bolton would win every time. And I thought that that was, yet again, a very interesting commentary about where we are in current day because it's a conservative leaning or definitely a conservative publication, but they gave the tie to Ambassador Bolton if it's an issue of credibility. So we'll see again how all this plays out. There were a lot of teasers that were kind of spilled into the public domain. The knives are out for sure, and we're going to see more of this in the coming not only days, but I suspect weeks and months as we head even further towards the November election.
1: Yeah, That's a good rundown, Guy. I think you're right, I mean, this is, again, really a down-to-earth uh, guy who's been in this business for a long time, so I think we can take his, uh, his uh, topics uh, pretty, pretty uh, thoroughly here. I think he's done a good job putting forth what he characterizes as what was going on in the room.
0: Yeah and I and I do think you know if you are whether you're a national security practitioner whether you're someone who listens to this podcast cuz you just have an interest in you know foreign affairs national security what's happening in the world what's happening in in America I would tell you this is definitely a master class in politics meaning control of information, uh, watching how how members from the White House are seeking to undermine Ambassador Bolton's credibility, Ambassador Bolton relying on past decades of service to help bolster his credibility. You know, so it's just, I guess for me, it's always been fascinating to watch kind of the who's up, who's down, what's being said, what's being not said, sometimes just as importantly, and uh, and how that's going to play out. But I tell you what, I think that, you know, that last point about what's not being said it's probably going to be very applicable to our main topic of conversation for this special episode, and that is the upheld relief of U.S. Navy Captain Brett Crozier, the former commanding officer of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier that had been stricken by a significant outbreak of coronavirus, had to be sidelined to Guam. We've talked over the span of several episodes about captain crozier about the incident i know you had some hang-ups about basically right at that inflection point of leadership between captain crozier his strike group admiral admiral Stu baker so i'm just curious you know what are your current thoughts about the situation now that you've had a chance just to at least hear about friday's announcement by the u.s navy
1: yeah I'm, uh, i started reading about it uh like most people there i think uh saturday but uh this is. I guess it gets to me as somewhat frustrating, you know, having been in the military for a number of years and watching the bureaucratic politics play out as well. I mean, we all would probably have to acknowledge Captain Crozier was trying to do the right thing, take care of his soldier or his sailors on the ship there. Uh, coronavirus coming down, nobody really knew that much about it. It's starting to spread on the ship. He, we think he took appropriate actions as a leader, uh, Turned out the first investigation by the Navy exonerated him and recommended reinstating him, went further to the Department of Defense, and I guess based on additional evidence they uncovered, uh, came back with a a recommendation of not reinstating him, and then the uh, Navy upheld that uh, recommendation. So uh, I haven't read the uh, 88-page in-depth PDF file. I know you probably have some more insight on that, but again, just from a purely leadership standpoint, it's – it's going to leave a bad taste on everybody, and I think a important point for you know practitioners, people who are up and coming, and watch this play out. It's going to put a chill in the air for leaders who have to you know report higher to their bosses of so what they do report, what they don't report, and how they report it, and you know what form a you know a secret uh, email or a non secret email, and a, what can be said. It's just really going to make everybody start second guessing themselves, which does none, none of the services any good.
0: I think you hit the nail on the head. It widens the fracture or it widens the chasm that has always somewhat, you know, it's always existed on some level between the most senior leaders of an organization and the rank and file. And I think whether you're in the military, regardless of your service, if you're in a large company, I mean, it could be Amazon, Microsoft, General Motors. I mean, there's always going to be some gap that exists between the most senior leaders who have access to, I'd say a large, you know, the strategic picture, but aren't on the assembly line. They're not at the waterfront. They're not on the flight line. They're not inside the hull of the ship or inside the, you know, the skin of a tank and actually doing the fighting or doing the the grunt work. And you just, it, it, there's always going to be that natural tension that exists because if you're the rank and file, you're you're looking uphill going, how can you not understand what we had going on here? How could you not understand that this was a fast-moving issue? You're applying, and I think we'll, we'll walk through a couple of issues because, uh, to your point, I did read through over the weekend the 88-page report to include – Admiral Gilday's kind of cover letter to distribute with the report about his findings and his, and his recommendations. And then I also read the 44 ish pages of the findings of fact. And uh, I will simply say about the findings of fact, I talked to several major commanders in the Navy over the weekend and I unsolicited a couple of them brought up the fact that they, they said when they read through the findings of fact, you know, there were quite a few places where they're like, this is more like findings of opinion (laughs) than findings of fact as they were seeking to, kind of sway the audience. And so let's take 30 steps back and look at the big picture, right? Let's look at the forest first before we talk about the trees. And I would say the forest is having worked on senior staffs within the Pentagon. I will simply say, and I'm not leveling an accusation, I'll simply say that you can can basically get to any answer you want to drive to the outcome you're trying to achieve. And then you'll find ways to align the information at hand to get there. And I think we've all seen this play out throughout our careers, regardless of your industry, regardless of your branch of service, if you're serving or if you're a civilian, uh, where you work throughout national security. I mean, that's just a fact of life. You know, sometimes as a senior leader, you say, here's here's what I think and here's where we're going. And, and the only concern I have from an optics standpoint, for sure, certainly there's no doubt that the Navy is very concerned about controlling their narrative the navy is very concerned about optics it's a very politically charged it's a very partisan moment in time for the services and we've seen this and we've talked about how this has played out with the commander-in-chief so now here you are yet again thrust into the spotlight with this captain crozier situation and frankly you just kind of want to go away as soon as possible and and i guess if nothing else for food for consideration when you have the Acting Secretary of the Navy modely relieve Captain Crozier. The Chief of Naval Operations recommends reinstatement based on our preliminary investigation that looked at communications, looked at the way they handled the coronavirus. They looked at everything they had available over the course of a week and said, I recommend reinstatement. That's a pretty strong statement to make and a resolution to arrive at right around the time that the Acting Secretary of the Navy resigns. And then to come back, you know, and to present that to the Chief or to the Secretary of Defense and be told, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. I'd like you to take a, a deeper look. There's there are several ways you can interpret that, one of which could, of course, be, I'm not necessarily happy with the answer you brought me. Why don't you go ahead and take a deeper look and maybe bring me a different answer? So uh, we're not 100% sure how this all went down. I can tell you, based on talking to uh, people around the Navy, Captain Crozier himself was expecting to go back into command. He'd already been in discussions with senior leaders about the timing to do so on board the TR up until about a week ago. And then uh, the rug was pulled out from underneath his feet pretty close to the time that Gilday announced uh, the findings that he shared with everybody on Friday.
1: So without naming any names, Guy, would you say that other commanders did have a similar issues with the outbreaks on their uh, their vessels and uh, obviously uh, let their leaders know, but didn't get into the public domain, but did they do some actions different than what Captain Crozier did?
0: Well, the report doesn't really go into that. And of course, for interests of, or in the interest of national security, I think the Navy and all services have been a little bit circumspect with how they share the numbers of infected, where they're located, and any operational impact it's had on vessels or aircraft wings or army battalions, etc. I mean, so they've they've tried to keep some of that close hold and they'll share some aggregate numbers so that the members of the media can at least report on it. They're trying to show some transparency, but without giving any potential adversaries or competitors, any safe harbor with more information that's required. So all that to be said, the report only looks at one other ship that was part of the strike group that had also pulled into Vietnam with the USS Theodore Roosevelt. The steps that they took to mitigate were very similar to what the USS Roosevelt was doing. I think the difference is, and and realistically speaking, and I guess we might as well go to the punchline. I think the problem for the rank and file in the Navy and for the larger national security community is that Admiral Gilday took to the podium on Friday to say that he was going to go ahead, change his course again. He's going to uphold the removal of, of Captain Crozier because, man, if he had known then what he knew now, he never would have recommended reinstatement in the first place. It's almost like that situation where Doth protest too much. He mentions numerous times in the report and numerous times on TV that Captain Crozier's letter and the fact that it went public had any impact on his relief. He should be relieved because of his failure to be proactive in mitigating coronavirus and not effectively using the chain of fan. And also because he didn't more aggressively seek better sources of information while this was occurring. I would tell you having read both the findings of fact and also reading through the entirety of the report, it's really kind of the reverse. I mean, if you have ever followed politics in DC, if you've ever followed how the services specifically the U S Navy has handled, high-level firings or issues to get in the public eye, this is a textbook example of you're saying you didn't fire him for the thing you deliberately fired him for, but the stuff you're saying that you actually wanted to fire him for, he actually did quite well on. We can dive into the deeper, but I thought that was the thing that really stood out to me, was that there were some real opportunities lost with the report itself, and more importantly, with the way Admiral Gilday handled it.
1: Yeah, no, I'm just curious, of, you know, some of Captain Crozier's peers out there are thinking, wow, I'm glad I didn't report like that because I dodged a bullet and I did exactly what he did. You know, I wonder if any of them would come up on the net or even anonymously and tell their chain of command that, hey, I did the exact same things there. Should I be relieved?
0: So I think we both know the answer to that. There's not gonna be a single person who asked that question, uh, although several might be thinking it. The report also outlines that when Captain Crozier sent his email, as has been pointed out several times, he had no intention of highlighting it. He sent it to his chain of command the senior most member of the chain of command who received it, who was commander Pacific Fleet, actually read it, was alarmed by it, immediately called the ship, offered support, had a direct conversation, and buried it. Didn't report it up the chain and wasn't going to take any adversarial action against Crozier because of the letter. The only reason Crozier gets fired is because the letter goes public. Someone on the staff, and I suspect I know which staff it was based upon the ally they used publishes the letter and there's another there's another issue we can get to i guess right now which is just how a report is written can easily sway someone's belief for either a presumption of guilt or innocence the thing that's interesting about this the report and even admiral gilday's own letter on page one talks about the fact that he admits that the captain was concerned and had the well-being of the crew as his utmost and top concern He's also, meaning Admiral Gilday, is mindful that the actions of those involved must be considered with the understanding of the unprecedented nature of the challenge, the fast pace of the crisis, and the difficulties involved with evolving guidance. So to me right there, I mean, if ever there was a sentence or two that would say, stuff got real, all this happened within about the span of a week, and things were moving fast. There's a lot of conflicting guidance from multiple admirals coming into one ship that's actively trying to fight an outbreak. And the fault with discerning the signal from the noise lies with the captain specifically and the people who senior to the captain uh, bear no faults. It's sometimes not even whether or not that's a true statement or not. Personally, having read the findings of fact, I don't think that is true. I think that the captain and the entire crew of the Theodore Roosevelt, the senior leaders, were juggling a lot of baloney administrative each staff, the CNO staff is telling them one thing. The commander of Pacific Fleet staff is telling them another. The commander 7th Fleet staff is telling them yet a third thing. They're trying to juggle so many different sources of information that are all contradicting each other about what was important at the time, what they were required to do. And it made life untenable. So contrary to what Admiral Gilday announced on Friday where he said he was upholding the relief because the captain did not demonstrate the proactive, forceful leadership the ownership of the problem the the maximizing the impact that was underneath his span of control well when you read the report and then you also talk to individuals on the ship who were directly involved with this the report withholds a lot of the the supporting evidence that would demonstrate that the Theodore roosevelt was being incredibly proactive with their response commander of carrier strike group nine Stu baker was also being proactive with the response and they're being stymied by higher headquarters with all the different conflicting guidance that they received.
1: Yeah, as we talked previously, this is going to be a case study for all the uh, PMEs, uh, professional military education, uh, universities uh, throughout the force there. I'm just trying to think, oh, you know, what a good title is going to be, you know, to report or not to report, and, you know, where where it goes from here. Sad, sad for all involved, but you know, I think the Navy is now probably going to put it to rest, and that's going to be the end of this chapter for now.
0: Yeah. Well, this is our main event, so I think you should give it a little more reflection <laughs> as far as what we're talking about for this special episode. And I say that because um, I know you haven't had the benefit of reading it. Something that stood out to me too, right? So let's talk about opportunities lost. Perhaps due to the intense political nature of Sino's job, he had an acting secretary of the Navy, I guess the second acting secretary of the Navy, who directed a reevaluation of the findings from the preliminary investigation. So Gilday and Admiral Burke go back to the board to uh, take a deeper look at what's going on on board the TR and supporting agencies. All this culminates in this report, but there's also a summary of opinions and recommendations for what needs to be accomplished next. One of which, Mark, to your point, is to create a case study. But the way the case study is set up isn't take a broad look at this. The case study is basically take a look at the actions on board the TR how a Navy captain could not be more proactive in seeking outside sources of information, and how warfare commanders, these are all 06 level, right? Meaning Air Force and Army and Marine Corps colonel slash Navy captain level individuals working together as a team to assess and fight this problem, how they suffered from groupthink. And basically, uh, the report doesn't say this, this is me saying this, but uh, essentially what's implying is how they kind of fall into hysteria and overreact, which re- results ultimately in Crozier's letter, which calls a lot of undue attention to the Navy.
1: Wow. wow. Did uh, any of the other uh, carriers have as big an outbreak that you can talk about or uh, know off the top of your head?
0: No, uh, not that I am aware of. And frankly, I I haven't even tried to follow what, you know, the tick-tock of any other ships or units within the Navy. And like I said, I think all services have, have worked, understandably, I would say, in the interest of national security to obscure some of the facts of coronavirus outbreaks in order to avoid providing any aid or comfort to competitors or adversaries, uh, should they seek to exploit the situation, right, wherever you may be around the world.
1: You know, the only re- reason I ask is I've had a number of folks ask me, Mark, what did Captain Crozier do wrong? I'm sure he probably even asked himself, what did I do wrong? Why, why am I being relieved there? And I'm not sure that the report or any of the news stories could really adequately qualify it there. You know, what exactly did he do wrong that would cause him to be relieved? And I think that's
0: where this gets into some of the information that's not in the report that would have been well served to be both included in findings of fact, but also in the report itself, right? So The primary reason for relief, without a shadow of a doubt, was the fact that his memorandum, four-page memorandum that has been widely covered in the media, was leaked to the press. It made its way into the public domain. It caused a ton of scrutiny on the United States Navy. It no doubt caused consternation between the White House and the Department of Defense to include the Secretary or the acting Secretary of Navy at that period of time. There's just no doubt in anybody's mind that that's a reality of the situation in Washington, D.C. for senior leaders. Senior leaders would certainly say this caused unnecessary scrutiny on a uh, department that's already taken a number of hits in 2019 and 2020. When you think about the uh, Eddie Gallagher situation, the resignation of Secretary Spencer, the firing of Admiral Moran, who was going to become a CNO. I mean, it's just been a really rough time for the Navy. And yet, here's another fastball they've got to deal with. I can tell you, and I think anybody who has served in command within the Navy would tell you that if this had not gone public, he would never have been relieved. So, I think that's that's the number one just reality that if you're a junior officer, if you're a junior national security practitioner, you know, there really is a nice rule out there that is before you hit send on an email, you need to just assume that everybody in the entire service is going to be able to have a, a chance to read it. You know, how's this going to look when it hits the cover of New York Times? It's stated in the report, Captain Crozier uh, stated that he did not necessarily have political concerns and or media concerns in the forefront of his mind. And was it, he really just didn't pay much attention to the fact that, hey, I'm sending a small distribution to a total of ind- 10 individuals directly in his chain of command, This this letter, Uh, and memorandum. And if this leaks, this could be bad. So I think unfortunately, that's, you know, that's putting on Captain Crozier's shoulders, the burden of whoever it was from one of these staffs who leaked the actual memorandum and caused all this pain and discontent for the Navy. You know, this is really on their shoulders, not his, but he's the one whose name's attached to the memo. He's going to have to be the one that ultimately, I guess, doesn't even fall on a sword. Someone sticks the sword right through his chest, because someone's going to have to To bear the brunt of this. Now, I will tell you that uh, certainly individuals on board the Theodore Roosevelt I've spoken with who were part of that command team, look, I mean, they'll be the first ones to tell you it was a fast-moving situation in the perfect hindsight of 2020 from mid-May or even here we are, you know, towards the tail end of June. With everything we know about coronavirus now, would they have done things differently? Sure, you bet. There's also the perspective difference with you when you're in close continuing contact with leaders who are working the coronavirus issue on a daily basis. You're talking to them, if not daily, hourly about uh, status updates. You've got that 5,000 mile screwdriver coming from the Pentagon, coming from Commander Pacific Fleet, coming from all these different upper echelons, all seeking to get inside the skin of your ship. There is just a absolute communication breakdown. So that's probably one of like the major lessons learned that I think that the CNO would have been a rock star. He may have arrived at the decision to uphold Crozier's relief. I think CNO could have been a rock star if he had at least, in this report, pointed the finger back towards Navy staff a little deeper and said, this has become a systemic issue where there's miscommunication, where leaders lower in the echelon, signal concern about readiness, signal concern about they're not getting what they need. It rises to a high level, gains public uh, interest, and then that leader's dismissed, but the senior leaders are uh, are moving right along. I think he would have been great if he'd said, let's do a case study that takes a look at what we could have done better. If he takes a look at, you know, why does a report, for example, talk about all the negatives of the TR, but rarely about the positives? Why does the report bend over backwards to talk about all the positives of senior Navy staff. but doesn't really highlight any of the negatives. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think that the CNO could have done to say, Hey, we're not blameless. Uh, There's a lot we could do better. And we've learned from this episode. But at the end of the day, when you're the captain of a capital vessel for the U S Navy that finds itself in these waters, this is the expected outcome. And in this case, this is the outcome we're going with.
1: Touch on another uh, topic. I was thinking this through the, uh, what were the two ships that, uh, involved in those uh, accidents the McCain and Fitzgerald the one. yeah so soldiers were, or sailors were uh, killed injured on those and the navy actually came out and held a lot more people accountable in addition to the captain so I'm just curious with the Crozier thing right now all we've heard is uh Captain Crozier being relieved and I think Admiral Baker promotion may be on hold but is anybody else looking at being held accountable uh, you were mentioning you know staff uh, I think has a big role in this but other leaders you know miss seems a lot bigger than just one one person, one commander. And so that's one
0: thing the report did say was to take a look at further administrative actions against the senior medical officer on the ship. Uh, one thing the report does paint, which is pretty damning, at least is the way it's written. And of course we weren't there. And and I've already highlighted there are, there's some daylight between I think reality on the ground from what I've heard from people who are present during this episode on the TR uh, and the way the report has been structured. So I'm not sure if this holds true for the SMO or the senior medical officer as well. But, you know, it sounds like there's a near mutiny with the medical department and that a lot of the junior individuals and officers in the medical department had, had written a pretty alarming letter with explosive language. They brought it to the senior medical officer and said, we want you to sign this to support us. We're going to send this to Navy leadership or Navy medical leadership, and we're going to threaten to leak it unless they change course and do something. And the report, I think is, I mean, one, it says the senior medical officer did sign it, which, of course, I would not have agreed with. It does mention that both the executive officer for the ship and the commanding officer for the ship both said, don't send this letter. Things are in work. This is not the right course of action. However, they still sent this letter. Uh, It also mentions that unlike Captain Crozier, who had a very small distribution on his email that went to the appropriate leaders in his chain of command, now, I think uh, Captain Crozier himself would tell you that in hindsight, even though he's dealing with these people on a daily basis and they're aware of actions being undertaken, he still should have informed the strike group admiral before he hit send on that email to circle back around and make sure things are moving in the right direction. He should have included uh, one leader he admitted from the email chain, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean, there's definitely lessons to be learned from the TR side and I'm not saying anything to the contrary, but I am saying that, when you've got the senior medical officer who emails us to senior medical leaders, then in and then sends another email to 160 just random people around the Navy, forwards copies of documentation to his personal email address. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that you kind of raise your eyebrow and go, "Ah, that's, that right there does sound like that would be reasons for removal or dismissal for cause. But uh, again, the thing that that I think will ultimately come out should an enterprising reporter or two begin to FOIA the statements from those involved and start actually digging into more of the, I would say the full spectrum findings of fact is going to demonstrate that this, you know, the CNO plays it out like captain Crozier is withholding his sailors from get from disembarking from the ship. They can't leave the ship until he has pristine hotel rooms. And that's not a course of action that the Navy was looking to take therefore you know he stymied efforts to put the security of his sailors before their i believe it was like comfort and well-being well that's not true captain crozier for example had hundreds of sailors staged in the hangar bay of a a aircraft carrier telling the base commander i am ready to get more sailors off i need you to come get them i need you to give me the lodging and the base co is saying i don't have capacity i don't have this now the report will say only something like 500 rooms out of about 1,500 were being used. But that's because the base commander hadn't actually made those rooms available. And that inflated 1,500 number was actually from later in the week than the first few days they were sides. right? So there's a selective use of information throughout the report. The report doesn't cover down on a lot of the mitigation efforts they put in place. And frankly, the report does do a good job of saying, as soon as they realized that sailors could have been infected or exposed to COVID, they immediately left Hanoi, they got underway, they put those individuals in isolation, they tested them, they, they followed all the known CDC guidelines at that point in time. And in fact, when they got underway, the CDC guidance and, and what became more widespread guidance to practice social distancing was not even in place. So when you're the CNO and you're and you're blaming a Navy captain for not taking extraordinary measures that the Navy itself hadn't even proposed, I think is a little bit of once again you're using the lens of perfect hindsight to judge the person who is uh, fighting this battle in a bad light. The other thing I I thought was a little bit beyond the pale, right? So the report will will highlight things in a way that makes the captain look pretty bad. It'll say. The Commander 7th Fleet was having a daily coronavirus working group meeting and the, and the captain of the ship did not participate. Well, if you've never served on an aircraft carrier, if you've never been in the military, you might read that and say, wow, yeah, the captain is derelict in his duty. He's not taking part. And of course, when you, when you actually talk to individuals who were there, no, the, the Theodore Roosevelt had a representative at those meetings every single time. The captain of a warship rarely attends working group level meetings, just like the chief of naval operations would not attend a working group level meeting inside the Pentagon. That's, that's well below his purview. They had active ongoing flight operations. They were still doing what's called underway replenishment. It's called an unrep. There were still a lot of day to day activities going on this carrier as they're trying to, to battle against the outbreak of COVID. And so really, Mark, at the end of the day, you get to the, I guess, culminating event, which is his email and the reason for the actual reason for his relief. And that is by the report's on admission for days and days and days during this outbreak, the Navy had said they were not going to entertain any ho- use of hotel rooms. At the same time that the CDC and the Navy itself had put out guidance saying that if someone was positive or presumptive positive for coronavirus, they needed to be isolated and quarantined, which you just can't do on board a carrier. The naval base Guam facilities were all packed in together, just like you'd be on a carrier. And so they weren't being given the opportunity. And that's ultimately, you know, when you when you read the report, that's why the captain took the extraordinary measure was because of the fact that uh, senior leaders claimed they were already working the situation. They probably were. They just didn't pass any of that information downhill. The captain who believes things are moving way too slowly for what they're seeing is a quick rise in cases sends that letter. He sends it to a trusted group of individuals within his chain of command. One of those individuals leaks the email.
1: Yeah, that's just really is what irks me. I mean, again, there's so many folks involved with this problem slash situation. I mean, not only 06, but you know, 07, 08, 09, 010, yet only one person that we know of is, is fired there. It just, it just kind of galls me that And It it happens in all the services as well there, but, you know, you just try to push blame down to the lowest level and everybody else kind of wash their hands of it. It's just a really kind of gets in my craw.
0: And so to your point about the McCain and Fitzgerald collisions, that's something that to use your term stuck in the craw with a lot of Navy commanders and major commanders was when the uh, then CNO, John Richardson, Admiral John Richardson had repeated meetings with commanding officers and pointed the finger right at them and said, basically, this is your fault. I don't, you know, I don't accept any responsibility for this. This isn't, my problem is the person responsible for man train and equip of the service or readiness of the service. This is, you know, on you as the commanding officers have to make this kind of hard call. When of course, as you look back at that investigation, these commanding officers were signaling concerns were sending that uphill. Even the Admiral at seventh fleet at the time, uh, Admiral vice Admiral Acoin, was repeatedly sending his flares upstream saying these ships are not ready to go. They cannot proceed on mission. They, they're not, this is going to lead to a bad result. The collision happens. And of course, Aquin was a guy to leave. So I think that's, you know, that really is the crux of the matter. That's where, uh, you know, sometimes just as very, very senior leaders, you have to once again, remember and recognize that you're always judged based on your level of performance. You know, if you're a commander, you don't get fired for making a commander mistake. If you're a commander, you you do get fired for making a lieutenant-level mistake, right? Just like a lieutenant wouldn't get fired for making a lieutenant-level mistake. So when you're operating at your level, you're doing all the very best within your span of control, and something like this occurs, you don't fire someone for it. Now, you do fire them if they make just a really, really bad, immature mistake. And I suspect at the end of the day, that's probably what the CNO could have said, is that he felt that the captain's decision to send this memorandum, what maybe revealed a level of immaturity, that he wasn't comfortable with and that's why he upheld it. I think people could get behind that and I think again the CNO would have been very well served not only for this particular situation but to continue to try to find a way to heal the divide between senior leaders and those they lead with the McCain, the Fitzgerald collisions, the other numerous incidents that have occurred throughout the past few years in the Navy by simply saying you know there, there really is a, a leadership issue, just like the new Navy Secretary has said, And we're going to be taking a really hard scrutiny at us. And we're going to to be publishing some reports on us and do some case studies on us to figure out how can we communicate better? How can we use the chain of command so that a ship that's fighting an active and ongoing outbreak isn't receiving different guidance from three different admiral staffs, none of which align with each other.
1: Yep. That's why the case study is going to be interesting when they come up with their recommendations on what possible courses of action a leader is supposed to take and a unknown territory such as this. It's going to be a challenge.
0: I would love to see, I guess the last pitch I would say, if I've got a call to action of any kind, it would be this. Now, It it would be great to see some enterprising Navy individuals who get together like at the War College or at the U.S. Naval Institute or at a group called SimSec, right, and says, okay, we know that the official U.S. Navy stance is going to take a look at some of the leadership breakdowns on board the TR and it's going to be specific there. Let's take a more holistic look at uh, what's been occurring and what do we think that not only can we learn from these incidents, but also what can the younger cadre, junior sailors, both officer and enlisted, what can they learn and understand about the perspective of being a senior leader that will help make better informed decisions, right? I mean, anytime, you know, when I was in uniform, I always espoused uh, what's called two up, one down leadership. And I always told my sailors that, hey, you need to be not only thinking about what do I need as your boss, think about my boss, the air Air wing commander, you know, what are they trying to achieve? What do they want? Because if you know that you can anticipate my needs and be much better at what you're bringing me. And likewise, one down, meaning, hey, don't dive down to the deck plates to task people, delegate, use that layer of leadership right below you, have high standards, hold people accountable, but don't micromanage, you know, delegate down. So two up, one down leadership. And I think that in this case, that's, Certainly, something that would have helped if if you hadn't had everybody rushing to provide input to the ship and just let the chain of command work, I think you would have would have sidestepped some of these issues.
1: Yep, I think that's going to play out as well as we try to develop future leaders. I mean, nobody wants to be micromanaged, and we're trying to develop leaders who're bold, aggressive, willing to you know take uh, take chances to seize the initiative. Uh, you know, especially when the bullets are flying or missiles are coming in there, you can't be you know second guessing yourself. Is this going to get me fired? And that's uh, the end of the day what the Davy's going to have to wrestle with here.
0: Yep. And I would say, uh, I guess, I guess the last call to action or just something to think about for our listeners is uh, what we talked about in a couple different episodes, right? John Boyd, you know, you can either be somebody or you can do something. And I think that's what has always made me feel very comfortable about the quality of men and women who stay in the fight in each of the services or as a civilian in the Department of Defense, the intelligence communities, etc. You know, you've always got talented individuals who will say, you know, I could minimize the impact I make. I could maybe sell a little bit of my soul to be somebody. But like John Boyd, they say, you know, that's not what I'm after. I want to do something. Right. I want to have that significant impact, inspire others, just like we talked about previously. At least in a lot of uh, military circles, people can tell you who John Boyd is. Nobody can really tell you who the chief of staff of the Air Force was at that same span of time. And I think that speaks to the utmost importance of being willing to be somebody that that actually puts impact ahead of, of promotion or, or job title. But otherwise, thanks everybody for listening as always. If you're a fan of the podcast, please go ahead and follow us. Give us five stars. Leave us a written review because that certainly fires Mark and I up. Consider heading over to Anchor FM and making a donation. Tell your friends, get the word out there. Positive comments on social media are, believe me, always appreciated. So thanks for your time and we'll look forward to catching you for next week's episode.